Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Our interview guest today is American coach Pellegrino Matarazzo to discuss how his team, Stuttgart, miraculously stayed up on the final day of the German Bundesliga. Before we get going, you can sign up for a subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style stories, on-site coverage of the men's and women's game, and Friday newsletters. Check out my column on Cindy Parlow-Cohn, the U.S. soccer president. That's grantwall.com. In segment one, Chris Whittingham and I will break down the soccer news. We'll have my interview with Reno Matarazzo in segment two, but let's bring in Witty. How are you, my friend? Dizzy from a soccer weekend. So much so we're recording this on a Monday, normally record on a Sunday night. I needed 24 hours to process what has happened. (laughs) One of the biggest weekends of the year every year, obviously, is most of the European leagues finish up. And let's just dive right in. Premier League, best final day for me in 10 years since the Aguero goal for Man City. Once again, Man City wins the title in dramatic fashion. Three goals... In five minutes, between minutes 76 and 81, to come back from a 2-0 deficit against Aston Villa and hold off Liverpool, which also won its game, though much more difficult than expected. And City did it, and they did it in dramatic fashion. As they seem to want to do. Uh, <laughs> it, they, they don't seem to win boring Premier Leagues. Uh, I guess you can say the most boring one was when they hit for 100 points. But even that one, they, they wanted to hit 100 points and there was some drama in it on the final day. That was unbelievable <laughs> to sit there and think that Manchester City are done for. After they conceded the first goal... I thought, wow, like the next five to ten minutes, it looked like the Real Madrid game all over again. Like they'd just taken this emotional hit, and you can just tell when they're playing their normal game, and they weren't. They weren't playing like they normally do at all. Miss hit passes, trying to hit the ball long, trying to hit diagonals that go awry. It was extraordinary to see them completely mentally fall apart again. Then at halftime, Pep Guardiola made what I thought was a very good change, bringing out Alexander Zinchenko and really having a back four that made sense, right? You have Zinchenko at left back. You have a right footer in Cancelo at right back. John Stones playing center back. The the back four that they started with was very strange. Stones right back, Fernandinho at center back. Don't know what you're trying to do there. He's very clearly, he's, he's done with Manchester City and it looks like it. He's it, He just doesn't have it anymore to play at this level. Cancelo at left back, which just played a ton of, but for whatever reason on this day, it didn't work. So the change at halftime worked, I thought, but then they didn't get a goal. And then they conceded another. And for me, that feeling as a fan of Manchester City falling apart in these big moments, I just, I didn't think they could pick themselves up off the mat. And I'm just waiting. I I, I could not bring myself to, I have a second TV. I could have put it on. I chose not to put the Liverpool game on because I just knew. I didn't want to give myself the hope of maybe there's a chance that Liverpool can can not win this game. They were always going to win that game. They did, and Man City pulls off this miraculous comeback, and all credit to Ilkay Gundogan for making it happen. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I, you, by the way, congratulations. I know you're a City <laughs> fan. You're out now in that regard, and... Uh, and they really did earn it. But Ilkay Gundogan's a really interesting guy. I think he's a phenomenal player. And yet there's been talk of him maybe leaving City. Um, I think he's underappreciated. I think he was a terrific sub. Obviously, he comes on and scores two goals. Uh, and he was actually a pretty good sub in the game against Real Madrid. 
um, where he comes on and, and scores, even though things didn't work out in the end. But, uh, you know, like just a, a, a terrific player. Do you think he'll stay? And in, can, a, can something like this, this kind of clutch performance, have an influence on that? I do, just because I think with Fernandinho leaving, um, you're starting to see maybe a few guys that either could get sold or kind of running towards the end. I kind of felt like Man City needed to add another midfield player and you don't want to make that hole even bigger. So maybe, I guess, because of his age, you'd want to give him a longer-term contract. But like you said, there's going to be a high, high-level team that wants him in their side. I don't think there's a team that, quote, wants to play football in the world that wouldn't have a player like Ilkay Gundogan in their team. Even a team like, you know, Liverpool, with the way that they press, Ilkay Gundogan can do a job there. It, I'll be honest, as a fan, it took me a second to warm to Ilkay Gundogan. In that first season... I just didn't get it. I, I didn't understand like what the appeal was. But in the COVID season, I believe, 2020, he had this goal-scoring run that was absolutely unbelievable. And it was kind of in those moments where, yeah, you kind of need the goals to justify what is otherwise very good performance. But he is an incredible taker of set pieces. He's actually really good from the penalty spot. He just kind of picks out a corner and passes it into the corner, and there's no way to get beyond it. And then in this game, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the aftermath of that Champions League loss about players with personality to play. And now Man City doesn't really have those characters. And I think Gundogan showed that in abundance in this game when he comes on and gets the two goals and also just kind of helped them steadily play. Kevin De Bruyne as well shows that personality. Uh, that ball for the third, I think, is actually kind of the underrated part. Yeah, Gundogan yeah. gets the header for the first and then taps in the third. But my God. God, that ball from De Bruyne for, for for the third goal, kind of racing onto a loose ball, getting on, getting a first touch away from the defender and bending it around everyone. It was a stunning pass, and City were able to get the job done. You know, it's fascinating too, just the the storyline of Steven Gerrard and Philippe Coutinho, the former Liverpool players who obviously didn't win a Premier League with Liverpool, uh, and. It looked like they were gonna win a Premier League for Liverpool. Yeah, Jared in particular. That's you know the ultimate feather in the cap. I was. It was kind of stunning in the week to hear like there's almost like integrity questions about Steven Gerrard, which it doesn't make any sense if you're sending your team out to win. And it also helps Liverpool. There's no conspiracy in that. You're just sending your team out to win. Which, by the way, for 75 minutes, it was a picture-perfect plan to hit Manchester City on the break, target Fernandinho, just basically say to Ollie Watkins, wherever Fernandinho is, run towards him, we'll hit a long ball towards you, something good will happen. It was a great plan. And they were able to then get the ball and play a little bit. I thought Buendia, in particular, in transition, was really good in the game for Villa. And then at a certain point, Steven Gerrard said it himself they stopped playing and Man City were able to take advantage but Aston Villa put together a really good plan as you said from a narrative standpoint that was kind of one of the things that washes washed over me as a fan it's like obviously from my point of view you know winning the league is the best the best thing and the best outcome and the best story and you know wouldn't be great if Man City were able to bounce back from their Champions League defeat to win a big game but the story for everyone was Liverpool able to claw back at what I, I believe at one point was a 13-point deficit in the Premier League, so good in the second half of the season, on the precipice of winning a quadruple, and Steven Gerrard and Philippe Coutinho are the ones who give them the assist to do it. It was an extraordinary story, and when it hit me at 2-0, it was like, oh, this is kind of meant to happen. 
Like Aston Villa <laughs> kind of have to do this, and Liverpool kind of have to win, and somehow they found it from their depths to ruin the party and be the team that wins a fourth title now in, I believe, five years under Guardiola. Yeah, it's pretty incredible, and 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 seeing the emotion of Pep Guardiola. Uh, just very much front and center for everyone. Uh, that guy was crying, uh, and uh, it had good reason to. And you know, if you didn't watch the games, you really missed out because the final results were, oh yeah, you know, Liverpool and Man City won as expected. But in getting there, it, at one point, both teams were totally choking. Yes. <laughs> you know. Oh my God. Yes. Even, even, I mean, Liverpool honestly might have been bigger because you conceded the early goal, and Wolves had other chances to score. Uh, 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 Was it Huang of of Wolves was clean in on goal, should have scored, and it was unbelievable how, you know, you get into the 80th, 85th minute. And honestly, I think Liverpool, by not getting their goals quicker, allowed Man City kind of the emotional space to. You know, this isn't completely pressure-packed yet. If we get it back to 2-2, we'll be fine. Like, if you really... I think they could have stuck the nail in the coffin if they had scored to make it 2-1. If they find out from either the fans or the technical area, Liverpool are winning, they might have crumbled even more. It might have been too much to take. But I think Liverpool, by not getting the goal while Man City were floundering, kind of gave them the chance to get back into it. And by the time Liverpool took the lead, and Man City were also in the lead, and it was a stalemate at that point. Really interested to see if Thiago, who went off in this game is going to be available for the Champions League final this Saturday because obviously another huge, huge game for Liverpool. And and frankly, as good a season as they've had, it'll, it would be kind of disappointing if they don't win a third trophy, you know, especially when they were in it for four. And that's a crazy thing to say when you think about it, but I think that's true. And they're going to be facing Real Madrid, uh, obviously, Huge, huge game. Can't wait for it. I'll be watching it at Smithfield in New York with my folks, which I'm already playing right now. Um, we don't have a ton of time here, so I want to move on a little bit to another huge story at the bottom of the table. Leeds United and American coach Jesse Marsh stay up dramatically on the final day, winning at Brentford while Burnley loses at home to Newcastle. Burnley goes down. And I'll be honest with you, coming into this game, I wasn't feeling very good for Jesse and Leeds and their chances of staying up because Burnley had gotten a point on the road midweek, and all Burnley needed to do was have an equal or better result in their game to what Leeds United had in their game. And we had talked about this, that Leeds had gotten points under Jesse Marsh, but they hadn't had a really huge win yet uh, in in this relegation fight. And the crazy thing is they ended up getting the win at Brentford, and they didn't actually need to in the end because Burnley lost. So even if Leeds had tied, they would have stayed up. But just such a massive, massive relief for Jesse Marsh and Leeds United, and you can tell in the way they celebrated this result. I love the way that he in particular set forth his celebration because he can leap into the air and leap into the arms of the technical area, but he literally fell to the floor. There is 
nothing that for me more symbolizes a relegation dogfight than in the height of euphoria, you just fall to the ground because you've had so much on top of you. It was actually interesting because on the day of, I had an early morning flight. So I was kind of like, oh, let's see what, what the what the buildup is. So I flipped like between on like the app on Talk Sport and BBC Five Live, see what they're talking about on the day. And basically on Talk Sport, they were already kind of doing the leads you know, uh, funeral. They were kind of like, all right, you know, they had even a fan on. It was like, you know, we shouldn't have gotten rid of Bielsa. We shouldn't have got rid of him for this, uh, you know, this injury and that. They basically told the whole story of Leeds this season as if they were doomed, as if there was no chance. And Newcastle, give them the relief. Newcastle allow for Leeds United to stay in the league. And kind of similar to it, their, their arcs were similar, but Leeds had more time. So Leeds get enough points before the international break to kind of feel like, all right, we can take a breath. We're good. And Burnley, they win three games in a row, and they're finally above the line and think, all right, we can take a breath. We're good. And Leeds had the fall off. Burnley had the fall off, but Leeds had enough time to get that one extra push to get the points that they needed to get over the line. And like you said, it was incredible, the celebrations. I think it was really cool that Leeds did win the game just because, yeah, if you if you draw, you stay up and, uh, whew, all right, but you don't have that euphoric moment of the goal goes in and the next whistle you hear is the full-time whistle and what a cool scene it was in that corner. I actually saw it because so the Leeds fans are in the corner of the stadium and you kind of like pan a little bit to the left and you see kind of even the Brentford fans like, ah, this is kind of cool. We're fine. We've long since uh, secured our staying up. Look at these guys having a nice time. And it was awesome. It was such a cool <laughs> scene. And after the game, Tom Bogert of MLSsoccer.com reports that Leeds, by staying up in the league, basically secured the signature of Brendan Aronson from RB Salzburg for a reported $30 million. So that deal gets over the line because they stay up. Yeah, I was going to mention that as well. That's a high price tag. I know we saw that price tag in in January and Salzburg refusing to sell in January, but it like one, is that too much for Brendan Aronson at this point? Is, I, I'm still a little surprised by the, the magnitude of that figure and excited though for Brendan Aronson and Jesse Marsh. Uh, and then is there any chance Ch Tyler Adams gets pursued by Jesse Marsh? Obviously they've worked together a lot over the years. Adams didn't play much under Tedesco the last half of the season at Leipzig, which, by the way, won the DFB Pokal German Cup this weekend. Yeah, and on penalties. They were down to 10 men at one point, down 1-0 and down to 10 men, but they still managed to win the German Cup. Uh, the, the Adams thing is interesting. I would, I have to be honest, I would kind of hope, really for both of these players, that they would aim for a little bit higher than the team that just finished 17th in the league. I know that to play for a coach you're familiar with and a system that you know you'll thrive in, you can understand why it would be alluring. But I think for Adams in particular, because he's already reached you know, a top five league, a Champions League team in a top five league. There are other clubs, I imagine, that will want to have a good holding midfield player. Like, I, I don't I don't want this to become like the stomping ground for Americans just because Jesse Marsh is there. Leeds, I think, have a significant amount to prove. Jesse Marsh has a significant amount to prove. He got this job done, this job which might have seemed impossible at various moments, but you kind of want to see them become a top-half club before I say 
Tyler Adams should go there and, you know, make this the next stop in his career. Frankly, we've seen too many Americans get relegated in these last 12 months, including all the Americans that went to Venezia, Josh Sargent now twice, first with Werder Bremen, now with Norwich. There's too many Americans getting relegated because you're not picking the right club. So I, I, I do think that Adams can probably aim for a higher level than Leeds. I'll tell you what, I agree with that. But like, remember, Leeds finished ninth Mm -hmm. in the previous season under Bielsa. And so, one, I don't think they're going to be in a relegation battle next season. Two, I would be really disappointed in their performance if they were. Yeah. Because this was kind of a freak occurrence here. And one thing you do have to remember is all the Premier League teams, if you can stay up, have a ton of money because of the the television deal. And so... You know, even the bottom half of the Premier League, those teams are wealthier than the top teams in Italy. Yeah. You know, and and so that's something that you have to remember about the market for players and where players want to go and how much money they can make is you can be in a bottom half team in the Premier League and make very, very good money. Uh, and so I, I just am curious to see what types of decisions someone like Tyler Adams makes and what other types of teams he might be able to go to. You don't want to make a lateral or downward move. I totally get it, but I certainly could see him making a move. And I'm, I'm curious to see what Leeds does to get better in addition to adding Brendan Aronson. Yeah, I think that you know, 24 million pounds, which is what $30 million translate to, is a really big money signing for a Premier League team that's not in the top six. So I think there will be a lot of pressure on Aronson to deliver and kind of be the fulcrum of this system that Jesse Marsh wants to implement. I actually think one of the things that I heard in the conversation about Leeds is their two best players are wide men, and Jesse Marsh prefers a very narrow system. So you might have to reconfigure the squad a little bit, and Aronson would certainly go a long way towards that. You'd imagine they'll probably get some money in as well if they're interested in in selling Rafinha. He's probably a player that can fetch a big fee, particularly if you hold on to him until after the World Cup, because he could play for Brazil at the World Cup, which would be fairly extraordinary for a a player who's 17th in the Premier League uh, to to play in the World Cup for Brazil. But yeah, I think they have a lot of building to do. They have a lot of recovery to do in terms of getting players fit. Um, But you're right. I think if Leeds are in this position next year, then something will have gone wrong again. I don't think this was meant to be a season where they're in a relegation dog scrap. But look, you get into it, and you have to get out of it. And full credit to Jesse Marsh for, for, for getting that job done. By the way, that counts as a Britishism when you say Leeds are. Just throwing <laughs> that out there. You don't do that? Uh, so. you, you say Leeds is? Yeah, man. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Ring the bell. <laughs> ring, ring the Britishism bell for Witty. Uh, so moving forward here, Women's UEFA Champions League final, stunning result. Lyon takes down Barcelona 3-1, overwhelming them in the first half with three goals, including just an absolute banger from Amandine Henri to get things going. Katarina Macario also scores. She had the third one. And fellow American Lindsay Horan gets the start, plays well. Glad I had her on the podcast last week. It's uh, just a, a real huge statement victory from Lyon against a Barcelona team that had been almost entirely perfect this season. They had been perfect in the Spanish league, which clearly needs to get better uh, and provide some resistance. And at the same time, Barcelona had just run through everyone else too. Like in the group stage, they just destroyed Arsenal in two games. 
They did have one slip up against Wolfsburg in the second leg of the semifinal, but that was after beating Wolfsburg 5-1 in the first leg, so you kind of forgave that. But then this game, Lyon, you know, we had talked about Ada Hegerberg saying women's soccer existed before Barcelona, so there was clearly a lot of motivation there, and Lyon just took him out. That was really cool. The idea that a team had kind of backed themselves as, hey, you're not you're not new to this. You're you're not you're not the first to do this. We've been here. We've done this many times over. We just didn't get a chance to play you last season. And sure enough, they go out there and they deliver that first half punch, right? It's three goals in 27 minutes. It's a banger from 35 yards out. I don't think, I mean, we can't sing enough praise about that goal from Amadine Henri. That was an absolutely extraordinary goal. And it was funny because uh, I, I texted you that I was surprised at this result. And I, I, I put a bet on Lyon to win. I was in a, a legal sports uh, gambling state this weekend in, in Virginia, and I saw the Women's Champions League odds, and it's like, I just, I looked at Lyon and I thought, there's no way they're this big of an underdog. Like, I understand that Barcelona have been amazing, and they've run through the competition, and they beat Wolfs, uh, Wolfsburg 5-3 in aggregate, and they beat Real Madrid 8-3 in aggregate, and they're dominant in the league. But I just don't think there's this much of a gulf between Barcelona and Lyon, and if anything, the gulf now exists on the other end, and now we have a real storyline talking point heading into the next Champions League is, can any other club reach these two clubs' level? Is, at some point, a club going to really reach Lyon's status? I heard Susie Rack talking about this. The idea that it's not just that we do women's football well, is that women's football is a part of our football club, and that Lyon even still are the only team that are actually like that. That, you know, they train in the same building and they play in the same stadium and they're treated the same by the hierarchy. That Lyon is still really the only team that does this this way. There are other teams that are progressing. Barcelona's progressing. Chelsea's progressing. Wolfsburg are, progre- are, are, are progressing. But Lyon are still kind of the blue bloods here and they show that tradition by winning this Champions League, another Champions League, and I won some money on it, so that was nice. Nice work there, man. <laughs> you know, it's interesting, there, there too. Like, there like, were like four to one underdogs. I couldn't believe it when I saw the odds. Like, I know Barcelona are amazing, but Lyon with a team of this talent are four to one underdogs in the Champions League final. I was floored. That is crazy. Nice work. I mean, it, it's, it is interesting to me on the artwork for the big Katarina Macario story that I wrote on my site in January. It says she's holding up a a shirt that says Ballon d'Or 24 question mark. And I'm feeling pretty good about that now on the track that she's on, except I'm wondering if 24 may be too late because she has been absolutely fantastic in the big games as has had uh, Ada Hegerberg. Um, but just, that was just such a cool situation to watch that game. I didn't have any dog in the fight, but it was, um, Huge, huge win. Can Amadine Henri win the Puskas Award? I mean, maybe if it's not Mario Balotelli for his goal over the oh weekend. Oh, my God. The Rabona. After, after, <laughs> eight, after eight step overs, eight <laughs> step overs that are Rabona into the opposite corner. I, I thought it was a karmic response to the 360 he did in the preseason friendly in the U.S. so many years ago <laughs> against, I think it was the LA Galaxy that caused him to get brought off immediately by Roberto Mancini, which is one of the great <laughs> moments of Mario Bellatelli's career. Good to see him do something that actually worked like that. One of five goals he had in the game. And then 
Let's move on just a little bit here to the U.S. men's national team roster, which came out late in the week. And no huge surprises here, but we'll run through it. Uh, Haji Wright comes in. Big chance for him in the number nine position. Hasn't been involved at all under Greg Berhalter, but has been lighting it up in Turkey along with Mario Balotelli. And then <laughs> Joe Scally gets a call up. He still does not have a cap. Uh, which I find interesting. I think that's going to change soon here. Georgie Mihalovic, who is an MVP candidate, is brought in in the midfield. Not really a surprise, but still something to follow. Malik Tillman uh, has still not had his FIFA one-time switch go through, but once it does, he'll be able to play. And that's, I think, a good get. He's still 19, unproven, but with the Bayern Munich system. Cameron Carter-Vickers gets a call up at center back. Interesting that John Brooks did not because it's just not going to happen for John Brooks uh, pretty clearly under Greg Berhalter. And I think that's something that can be heavily debated, right? I mean, we've talked about John Brooks quite a bit over the months, but whether we agree with it or not, not having Miles Robinson out with an Achilles and then still not calling in John Brooks tells you all you need to know about Greg Berhalter's perspective on that. Uh, Ricardo Pepe not brought in, uh, according to Burhalter, just to give him a rest. Gianluca Buzio from relegated Venezia not called in. Out with injuries, Serginio Dest, Gia Reyna, Chris Richards, Jordan Pifak, Josh Sargent, Daryl DK. Some of those guys in various stages of recovery. But we've got four games coming up for the U.S. Two friendlies, June 1st against Morocco, June 5th against Uruguay. Those should be really interesting games. I'm looking forward to those games. And then the Nations League games afterwards, Grenada and El Salvador, it's kind of like whatever. But uh, let's get back into U.S. men's national team mode. Yeah. Uh, So I I do think that John Brooks is probably uh, the biggest talking point from that because for me, it does kind of indicate that it's not just about performance. It's not just about, uh, you don't really fit into our system. You don't do these things, blah, blah, blah. Something happened there, and it's kind of like how uh, Chicharito hasn't been called into the Mexican national team, despite the fact that he scores goals and plays well for the LA Galaxy, and he should be in that side, especially when they're struggling to find the center forward. He should be in that national team, just as uh, John Brooks, if you just look at level that he's playing at, skill set he offers, natural left-footed player, should absolutely be in the U.S. men's national team, but he isn't, and... I don't think you can just say, well, it's a preference and you know, the performances he put in, in this game and that game. It, there, something is something happened there. And I will leave you, the journalists, uh, to responsibly <laughs> determine uh, what that is. I don't want to speculate. And I, I do think that something must have happened there. What was it you know, about the statements that have been given out in the press to kind of appeal for his place or whatever. I, I don't know what it is, but something very clearly has happened there. I do think that the second most no- noteworthy talking point is Malik Tillman, um, just because I don't know if this is Julian Green part de, because you know you, you get all of a sudden have a player who's in the Bayern Munich reserves getting called into the full Part's national five. team. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, it's it's interesting how, you know, Greg Berhalter, when there's all kinds of hand-wringing about losing Julian Araujo to Mexico and losing this recruiting battle, and, you know, do you have a recruiting battle on for Gaga Slonino, which, although that one has come to a conclusion, he'll play for the U.S. men's national team uh, per his statement. You have a recruiting battle potentially on for Kate Cowell, and all of these, and, and everyone always freaks out whenever there's a recruiting battle, and then Greg Berhalter just goes sneakily 
actually taking one off the. It was the English national team, right? Who he was he was getting calls into their youth squad. No, I'm sorry, it was the German national team who was getting calls mm-hmm. into their their youth squads for and. Voila, all of a sudden you have a player that's a really high-level prospect that could potentially figure in this national team. Be curious to see how he plays. I guess the difference between now and then in winning these sorts of Julian Green-like recruiting battles, I remember when Julian Green was called into the national team ahead of the 2014 World Cup, and it's kind of like our hopes are pinned on this guy being good. That like he here's our guy who could potentially go. He's at a big European club, and wow, what, what how amazing would it be if he took off and actually scored in that knockout game against Belgium? But he wasn't the promising prospect they turned out to be, and that felt like a big disappointment. Whereas now you have enough talent where if Malik Tillman doesn't work out, you still have enough. It just would be cool if this guy who was at Bayern Munich took off from there and became a really good player for the U.S. men's national team. I do think U.S. fans have gotten more sophisticated since the Julian Green, Gideon Zalalem days, yeah. where it was celebrated as, like, we're going to win the World Cup when those guys <laughs> committed to the U.S. And that's probably a good thing. And we'll see what Malik Tillman does. I thought it was interesting that U.S. soccer listed Tillman as a midfielder and not a forward because that actually, that choice does often say something about how the coaching staff views that player and where they're going to be on the field. Yeah, I, I and, and Tillman, per reports, has played as a forward. I do think that Greg Berhalter occasionally has moments where he kind of views players in a certain way and their clubs don't agree with him. And I find that interesting at times. I think for the most part, it's generally worked for the national team. You think of, for example, Yunus Musa. He plays as the wide of a midfield four at Valencia most often, and then he comes into central midfield and does a really good job and can boss the game from central midfield. And you're kind of thinking, well, what are Valencia missing? Um, so you have those sorts of moments, but I think Berhalter has those moments where he kind of likes how he fits in the chess pieces of his particular way of playing, and sometimes that's in complete and utter disagreement, and that player gets no reps playing that role for his club, but Berhalter persists because he believes in a certain way of using a player. Well, and for the same reason that you won't see Berhalter playing Christian Pulisic as a center forward or a false nine, yeah. even though we do see that with kind of alarming regularity at Chelsea. Or even has a straight-up number 10, which, he, which he'll play... Uh, with Chelsea, he'll kind of start him off the left, then have him drift into that position, you know, as 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 the play moves. All right, my friend. Always good to talk to you. Many thanks. Thanks, Grant. Now here's my interview with Reno Matarazzo. Our guest now is Stuttgart's American head coach Pellegrino Matarazzo. His team produced one of the great scenes in world football on the last day of the season with five, six minutes to go to stay up in the Bundesliga and avoid the relegation playoff. They needed Dortmund to score a goal in its game and to score a goal in Stuttgart's own game. They got the Dortmund goal, and then in the 92nd minute, Wataru Endo scored to keep Stuttgart up and set off wild celebration scenes in the stadium. Reno, congratulations on all of that, and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Hi, Grant. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, enjoy being here. So I loved your celebration with the team after Endo's goal. Could you take me through it? How did you experience those last crazy minutes, including even becoming aware of the Dortmund goal? Uh, I, I must say, uh, this is something that I've uh, never experienced before in my life. It was absolutely extraordinary. Uh, when Dortmund scored their second goal, there was a wave, a wave of energy from 60,000 fans that just electrified the guys in the pitch. I've, I've never been part of that before. It was 
unbelievable and hard to describe and put into words. But the the energy brought to the to the guys on the pitch from the fans, this this constant sound of hope and will and come on guys score that goal was really extraordinary and um, you know of course after scoring scoring the goal in the 92nd minute it was just an explosion of emotion which you know at that moment you're just you're just kind of an autopilot you don't know what you're doing anymore you're just doing it it's coming coming from your from your belly not from your from your head and it's just uh, fantastic when i look at the at the scenes myself i'm you know i'm reminded of the feeling that i had at that moment and it was absolutely fantastic have you ever been in a situation before as a coach running on the field to celebrate with your players yeah uh, yes Yes, that's not that's not uncommon. <laughs> uh, by by tight tight situations, tight wins. I remember the first first time was even in the second division, fighting for promotion, where we turned the game around against Hamburg. We two zero uh, deficit in the first half. We won the game three two. And the last one of the last minute goals from Gonzalo Castro, I celebrated as well and sprinting onto the field. This this year as well against Augsburg, we turned the game around. We won three two and. Um, I think I was um, praised from the speed in which my long legs carried me to the to the baseline. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. I mean, I was wondering as I was watching all of this and fans in the stadium coming onto the field, just so happy and, and just it was such a cool scene to watch on television. Did you even get a chance to speak to your players after all of that? And, and if you did, what did you say? Uh, to be honest, right after the game was just singing, dancing, drumming in the locker room. Uh, there was a sense of, a, 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 you were astonished that we were, I, I don't know what the right word is. Excuse me. I, excuse me for my poor English. This is, you know, I actually prepared my before this podcast by speaking to our individual trainer, Nate Weiss, who's also an American, I said, come on, please. I need to brush up on my English before this podcast. So uh, unfortunately it wasn't enough, but uh, it was hard to grasp. This moment was so big. I think it's bigger than, than our minds are capable to, to carry it, to hold. And, and that's the sense I had, like a, a loss of orientation and not really knowing what just happened. Uh, because it was so intense. And of course, the, the the lead up to this game was dramatic. And in the game, it was extremely dramatic. And the last five minutes was, like I said before, um, crazy moment. So I'm kind of putting the pieces together as the week goes on and making phone calls and talking to players. We, As I watched the, the game, the relegation match last night from between Hertha BSC and Hamburg, uh, that was a moment where I was very thankful to be on the couch and drinking a beer and uh, called several players and, and talked to them about the moment. So I've been kind of catching up with the players as, as the time goes on, but crazy. There is something about, and I, I try to explain this sometimes to people in U.S. other sports leagues because they don't have promotion and relegation. And the sense of relief, maybe, is slightly different. Is it fair to say that it's slightly different than when you are trying to win a league or win promotion to stave off relegation? I, I haven't experienced it myself, but I'm as someone who's interested in human experience, human emotion, 
Is that accurate from from your perspective? Yes, I, I would say so. I think uh, relegation battles are usually fueled by by fear and how to how to uh, steer fear and to use fear to instill you know bring energy on the pitch. I think it's a lot about pressure and a different kind of pressure. You know, if you're fighting for 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 promotion or the championship it's it's a positive pressure you have something to win and not something to lose so that's a i think the challenge is in in showing the players the chance that we have uh what you know the bundesliga next season that's what we're playing for we're not playing to fight to not playing the second leagues we're playing to play in the bundesliga next year so it's about kind of uh envisioning the positive and 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 moving forward in a good way. So there's a really cool video of your family back, I think back in the U.S. in real time, reacting to the goal that kept you up and celebrating. Have you seen it? Yeah, I, I, I've seen it. I've seen it. Um, my my brother has in his garage so a security camera, and uh, you know he, you see all the flags in the room that he set up. This is um, an amazing. They call it the arena as well back in, in, in Jersey where my brother lives and a couple games in, he realized, Oh wait, I have the security camera. So every now and then when there's a really great goal to celebrate, he'll like send it to me on, on WhatsApp and I'll take a look at it. And, and this time somebody posted it. I'm not sure who gave it to be posted. And it kind of just went, went viral people seeing it across the world. It's, uh, it's a fantastic moment. I think my, my dad tore it back. Uh, my brother Leo sat down with like a, a bloody, like he was bleeding. I, he doesn't know how. Uh, so it was an emotional moment that we also um, experienced in a, in a sort of ecstasy. So in the days since, what has the feeling been like for you? What's the mood like in the city of Stuttgart? Uh, to be honest, this is this is the first time in a long time where I have time and space to walk around the city and and discover it enjoy it because of you know we've had the corona situation and not wanting to take any risks and just be very very focused on on the job so the last few days i have been able to to go out for a walk and, and drink a coffee and uh, what i sense is um, gratefulness I, I i enjoy when people come up to me and, and just say thank you and, and i can only return it the compliment and say thank you you know you guys were unbelievably supportive uh, the fan base here is is very big and um, the fact that they never never really turned against us this season despite just being fighting for relegation for such a long period of time is is exceptional especially for a club like Stuttgart with the, the history and, and culture behind it so I'm also very thankful that they you know, just kept pushing us forward Forward in a positive way, game for game. You know, even away games, we had such an enormous support. You know, six thousand, three thousand, always, always full to the capacity that was able to be held, and uh, it's been great. It's been great having us behind us. So, your staying up caused Hertha Berlin to go to the relegation playoff that you mentioned against Hamburg. But on April twenty fourth, your team had lost to Hertha Berlin, and with just three games left, you were four points behind them. Did it seem unlikely to you at that point that you might still catch them? That that game hurt. That game hurt. That uh, losing in Berlin hurt. I think that was we had a tough time with the pressure in that game. We kind of that was the, the first game where I sensed such a big discrepancy of what the guys felt before the game and what they delivered on the pitch. 
you know, very hot, very motivated before the game. And you just felt the tension um, in their bones when the whistle blew. Um, so that was a tough game to, to digest for us because it was such a big game. Um, I think after that game, we focused on that which we could influence, and that was relegation. You know, hoping for more, but, you know, just kind of uh, the goal being secure, secure 16th place, uh, and then see what happens. And we needed a game to get back. Wolfsburg, we, we also started slow. It was also a short week. It was, um, we played on Sunday against Hatta BSC and Saturday against Wolfsburg. So we had one less day to train, one less day to communicate and get the guys to, to power. And you, you sense that against Wolfsburg. You still sense the disappointment in the beginning of the game. Worked ourselves into the game, came back, scored the 1-1 towards the end of the game, which was very important for us. And... Um, then we had uh, two games left against Bayern Munich and against Cologne. And we said, okay, guys, it's time, it's time to go all in. And uh, we did. Showed, showed courage, showed strength in a time where things were insecure and very, very proud of the guys for, for being able to bring that energy onto the field. Getting a point at Bayern Munich when you really need points is pretty incredible. Um, how did you see that game? Yeah, especially because they lost the week before they wanted to celebrate their title with their home game. Uh, so they were getting a lot of criticism from the media at that time as well. So they wanted to win. They put their best 11 on the pitch. And we knew that going into the game. But we had, we had hope come into play. Uh, Bielefeld had lost their game on Friday. Uh, Hatta lost their game on Saturday, which meant if we, if we get at least a point in Munich, then we have a chance for a final match. And against Cologne in the last day of the game. And that hope that it, it spread through the team, that we believe in ourselves, that's been the case week after week. You know, we've always been able to get up from, from setbacks, big setbacks, deep setbacks, and, and get back on our feet and fight again. The harder it got, the harder we fought. And um, just that hope kicking in before the Bayern game, I think it gave us the extra push to just to go all in. And we did, and we, we played you know, a good. We had a good start to the game. Uh, we went up. Then we had to suffer a bit in the first half, where they had a power play phase, where we were deep in our own half and just defending and try to clear every ball. And the second half, we uh, had a very, very good second half, where we kept Bayern away from our own goal. We scored also the two-two and deservedly had a lot of chances against Bayern Munich. Uh, it was a great game, a great point in which set up the stage for for the final against Cologne. It's such a long season. I was actually in Leipzig for your game at Leipzig very early in the season. And um, you lost one of your players to injury and long season ahead after that. And you had finished in ninth place last season. And I, I'm just wondering when you look at this whole season, how stressful was this season for you? Yeah, this, it was um, an extraordinary finish to an extraordinary season. I don't know if uh, everyone is aware in the States how much, how long our injury list was in, in the fall and the Corona list. We had so many people falling out in the fall where the, the first 11 was being set on their own. And it was more about just stabilizing, stabilizing the guys, getting, getting on track. And at the, at the highest point of our you know, injury list, we played the most two, two more, uh, most important games against Augsburg and against Bielefeld, and we lost both of them. So that kind of set us set us back a bit. Um, 
you have the, like I said before, the, the constant setbacks, the deep setbacks, you know, where you, you lose games that you should not lose because you're just better than the other team where you individual mistakes uh, lead to, to goals against or you, or the we don't finish our chances. Uh, we I think in the, just in the second half of the season, our expected goals, we should have scored 11 goals more than we actually did. Just, just in the second half of the season, which is a big number. You know, uh, Leipzig, who had the same amount of expected goals than we did, scored 22 more goals than we did in just in the second half, second leg of the season. So it just shows how much we needed to work for each goal and for each each point that we did. And I also think that um, another challenge was was the pressure on this young team. We have a very young team, the youngest team in the league, and to fight against relegation, this just steering this fear, you know, with guys who. Some of the guys, they've never played Bundesliga before or never been in this situation before was, was a challenge in and of itself. And I think, I, I wouldn't say it was, it was not, I wouldn't say stressful. I would say it was just took a lot of effort and not just from me as a coach, but from the com- complete coaching staff to the, all the guys uh, behind the scenes, every, every guy in the pitch, the fact that we stuck together and, and had that team spirit like we did just speaks for the whole club and everyone working for it. Just to wrap up here, what do you do in these five weeks before July 1st comes and the new season starts again? That's a good question. I was still working this week with uh, season analysis, just kind of reflecting the season and gathering information so that when I go into the break, I have food for thought, how I want to plan the next season. I've been still working this week. I haven't, haven't planned vacation yet with my wife and my son or my dog that we uh, newly acquired, <laughs> our puppy. Um, but I am sure that I will just begin to relax starting, starting tomorrow. Probably have some windows where my phone is completely turned off. Uh, of course, I will communicate to the most important people when my phone is turned on because you can't stop working <laughs> in this job. There's always a reason to be available and you need inputs. Um, so at some point, go to the beach, relax. Um, I don't know, maybe a little retreat with my son to just kind of get your head off of things and, and gain distance. And hopefully with uh, enough energy, we start the, the season strong. Pellegrino Matarazzo is the head coach at Stuttgart, which will be playing in the Bundesliga next season. Congratulations. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Grant. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Reno Matarazzo, as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. The best way to support my work is by taking out a paid subscription. See you next time. <laughs>